0: Y'all, we are in Genesis chapter 2, <clears throat> verses 18 through 25. A couple of, couple of rules for today. Uh, we are going to be looking at marriage. There is no nudging. There is no taking notes for the other. You only take notes for yourself. Um, you don't nudge anyone. And um, you also don't follow up this whole sermon with, did you hear what he said? Those are all against the rules, Okay. You don't get to do that. What you do get to do is um, consider Scripture. Um, this this uh, particular passage that we're going to read, uh, I told you all last week, we're, we're going to break it down verse by verse, but this is an opportunity, I think, to address a really good topic that we need a biblical understanding of. Um, so it's one, it's, it is expository in, in the beginning. Uh, it does become slightly more topical by the end, but I, I just think that this is something I, I wish that the churches and Christians would grasp, uh, because I think that we live often with the idea that marriage was kind of our design and our idea, and whenever we have that kind of in the back of our mind, well, then we get to make the rules for it, right? If it was my intention and my idea, that, and, and marriage was a man-made construction then everything that I bring into the relationship with Chas is I get to kind of make the rules because I'm the, you know it was my idea or vice versa. So what tends to happen is that the ideas and the philosophies of the world, while not all bad, tend to creep in. And we listen to a lot of sources about what a marriage should look like, and, and we bring in those expectations. And what I have found is that not a lot of people have actually gone back to consider the biblical view of marriage. For me, men, um, and, and it may be this way with, with women too. I'm not sure, but men, whenever I got this, it, it did change me. It changed my perspective on marriage. It got it uh, helped me to rethink how I think about marriage and my role in marriage. Um, and it may not do that for you. I may what what we see in the text. You might say, "Yeah, we knew that. Why'd that change your life?" Okay, I'm a slow learner then. But I do think that there's something really neat here. Uh, so what we're going to do, just the framework, just so you know, is uh, we're going to look at, at the text. We're going to break down the text just so we understand what the text means. If, uh, that's, that's one of our convictions at Cross Life is that whoever is preaching, teaching the elders of the church, the, the leaders of, the, uh, of, of women's and, and men's, if we're not teaching Christians how to understand the text, then we're not really equipping uh, as we need to. Um, In other words, um, Chas can tell me how to to cut up vegetables and and tell me in theory um, just kind of what she knows. But if she doesn't actually take me to the knife and to the cutting board and to to the fruit or or the vegetables and and walk me through it, then I'm not really going to learn until I actually do it. So what we want to do is we want to be a preaching, teaching church. We want to take you to the text, show you why we say this, because here's the thing. I honestly, as a pastor, and this happens a lot, y'all, pastors bring their own interpretation of Scripture. They say what they feel like needs to be said, and it's, it's not always backed up with Scripture, or they don't take people to the Scripture. So therefore, it's just this idea or philosophy floating out there. So we always want to take you to the text. So we're going to do that. That way, at the end of the day, you can say, well, Ricky, what authority do you have to say that? I can say, absolutely none. I have no authority in and of myself. I just want to show you what Scripture says. Okay, so with all of that said, I want to jump in, and, uh, uh, well, and I want to say this. This is not going to be a self-help speech. This is not three to five ways to have a better marriage. This is, this is more of a theological, biblical scope of marriage of when we see that this is God's design and God's intent, and here's what God wants husbands and wives to do, and this is really what it's a picture of and of its fullness we let that begin to shape us, and I think that the self help actually works itself out as the spirit equips us in our own marriages. So what works for, for me might not work for the Barreras. And I think that's okay. What works for the Dobbins is not necessarily gonna work for the McKinleys. But what will absolutely work is having a biblical framework for marriage that begins to work itself out. So I wanna that's that's my intent. Um, okay, I also want to say Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8 through 9. Actually, you know what? Turn there. You need to turn to 1 Corinthians 7, 8 through 9. Um, This is, while we're going to talk about marriage, I want to acknowledge this because I want us to be a church that does this the right way. And this one particular topic I'm taking us to is right in line with marriage. But 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 9. I read this passage and every time I read it, I think, man, the church has missed it. It's missed it. First Corinthians chapter seven, verse eight through nine, and we're gonna we're gonna jump and I'll lead you through those jumps. Paul says, To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Okay, now look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, verses 27 through 28. Paul's been continuing, and you can read the whole chapter. But uh, 27 and 28. He says, Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. A few verses later in 32 through 35. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord and how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And we can do that vice versa, right? And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Why do I bring this out, church? Because a church should promote the great blessings of marriage. Absolutely. But the church should also promote the great scriptural blessings of singleness for Christians as well. This is where I feel like the church has not done a good job. We keep wanting to hook the single person up with the other single person. They're single. I bet I can match. I'm getting, my wife is looking right at me because we do this. We all do this. But y'all, there is, in the church, it should be celebrated. Marriage is a great and incredible blessing from the Lord And scripturally speaking, singleness is a great and wonderful blessing from the Lord. It's not something to be fixed. It's not something to to be escaped. It's something that the Lord blesses people with. And I want to be a church that celebrates that and embraces that. Because God is the one who draws two hearts together, and God is the one who chooses to leave this person here. And Paul lays out, you know what? What a great blessing and honor it is because there are no divided loyalties in that heart, completely 100% devoted to God. So I just want to put that out there that as we preach about marriage today and God's design for it, not our own design, we also need to understand that applies to singleness as well. It's a great blessing. There's a blessedness in marriage, a blessedness in singleness, and God blesses His people with both for His own purposes. We don't have to fix His plan. So I just want to encourage you all to help me in that as we we continue to grow in Him. Okay, now we're going to get to Genesis chapter 2. So Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 through 25. And here's what it says. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make, a, make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man and then the man said this at last is a bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So that, that's, our, that's our text for today. Remember, we're moving through Genesis because in the beginning, God designed everything perfect and good. And in the end, everything will be perfect and good. Right now, we're in the not yet. So it's good for us to look back and remember. Well, have you ever done this? Have you ever gone back and watched your wedding video or looked at the wedding photos? No. Some of you, yes. Some of you, no. Okay. So whenever we look back, our kids always chime in that mom hasn't changed any. And look at dad. He looks funny. Right? So I had long, shaggy hair. I had the shaggy goatee. Um, I looked quite a bit different. Chas is timeless. She always looks the same. Doesn't seem to be. Whenever we take the picture, I'm getting my points. I know what I'm doing here. Okay. Um, But uh, but we do. We look back at that, and, and we remember with joy that day. And then there's parts where we're like, I don't remember a thing about that. It was just a blur. You know, we're looking back all the way to the joy of the first creation and the good God and all that He's given us. Everything right now that we see around us is broken and will continue to break until the Lord returns. So we need to be reminded that in the midst of what we have right now, here's what God did, and it was all good, and it was all right, and we get a pretty clear, pure picture of all of that. And so... It also helps us to understand who we are and whose we are, especially as Christians. Okay, so here we go. I just the, the number one point is God creates the companionship. And we're going to see that. This is part of what he does. We're going to kind of break this down in the text. And then we're going to move on to what I just call a grander view of marriage. And then uh, after that, just practical, what does the Bible say? How do we live now? So... Um, the scriptural breakdown, and then a grander view that's, that's in line with scripture, and then how then shall we live? So God creates a companionship. Let's just walk through this. In Genesis 2, 18 through 25, we're going to start in 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a him a helper fit for him. Y'all remember last week, his every intention toward man was good, and his every intention toward you, Christian, is good. It might not feel like it. You might wonder why we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You might wonder why it is that good Christians suffer bad circumstances. We wonder all those things, but Romans 8 is true, that he intends everything for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. It was that way in the beginning. It is that way now, and it will forever be. No matter how hard life is right now, you have to remember that this is the closest to experiencing hell that a Christian will ever get. This is it. The worst day that you can possibly imagine. That's the closest to hell that you will ever get because He paid the full wrath and penalty for our sins. We just keep moving progressively towards Him. But in the beginning, everything was good, and so much so that God looked at man being alone, and He said, it's not good. This is the first time God says it's not good from the beginning of the Bible. He says man should not be alone. He needs to have a companion. You know, Church, listen to this. In the, in, the, and I'm, in the mysterious trinity that God exists in, there was perfect and there is perfect unity and perfect community. So this mystery of the trinity, we can't wrap our heads around it. A.W. Tozer says that that's kind of got to be evidence that God's revealing himself to us because we would not make up the trinity. That defies all logic and all, all rationale. At the same time, in the mysterious trinity, there's perfect unity and perfect community. And as God creates man, then God also looks and says, he should not be alone. It's, it's good to have that. And yet here, here's man alone. So there's something of the fellowship of the Trinity that echoes for us in our loneliness. We weren't made to be alone. And I've said it over and over. There's no lone wolf Christianity. We were a people meant for community. So God fixes that. Why? Because God does everything good. That's what resounds throughout here. If we were Israelites reading this in the desert, we would keep thinking, oh my goodness, look what God has done. God is good. He keeps providing over and over. Okay, but look at this. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens. I'm, I'm pointing this one out, the verb tense. Number one, I'm an English nerd. I have a master's in English. It's what I did for years and years. You need to know that had brought is the past perfect tense. It's incredible. I know. You're like, I remember that from high school. I know you don't. Past perfect simply means that that there was the past moment. We're looking back at the past. God created, right? But in this particular point, God said, past tense, that it's not good for man to be alone. Well, by this past point, God has already perfected another action. So the past perfect is like the past of the past, basically. I'm pointing that out because those who say that genesis 2 contradicts genesis 1 they're not paying attention to the verb tense god did not create man and then create all the animals and then parade them it says that whenever god created and man and said it's not good that man should be alone it says now the god or that the lord had already basically already done this he's already perfected all the animals being created so this is just keeping everything in time i'm just for those of you who look into apologetics Look at that verb tense. It does not contradict Genesis one, but it then says he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. I think I think there's a there's something there in the oversight, the authority. Adam has the authority. God didn't call it the giraffe. I mean, we we get to name things now, but you gotta you gotta wonder what Adam called them and why he called them that. I mean, just random syllables rolling out of his mouth, and he's like. Tortoise. Tortoise, right? That sounds like you look like a tortoise. So there's, But he gets to name them. And so who knows why he named them what he did, but God said that you are my image bearer on earth. You get to have dominion over the earth. Therefore, I'm going to bring everything by you. Now, don't mistake what we see today to be what was in the original creation. I don't believe that all the variety of animals that we have today and the number of animals, the multitude, they weren't there in the original creation. Just like... Whenever um, Noah brought all of the the animals on the ark, he brought a sampling of them, right? So God brings them by. And I think that there's probably two things that are happening here. There's the authority that that Adam is owning at this point. But then I think it's also this. Keep going. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. And I think this was the other thing. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. You know what has to be really starting to to develop in Adam? I don't know if he knew his loneliness before. God did. God said it's not good for Adam to be alone. It's not good for man to be alone. But then what begins to happen is every animal comes by, and everything else in all of creation comes by, and Adam begins to realize there's nothing or anyone like me. He's got to be developing that yearning. But at the same time, y'all, church, take a look at it. There's nothing else in all of creation like mankind. Like, you go to the science books, and it's just, we're just an extension of the kingdoms. We're just the latest step in, in some sort of evolutionary theory. But you know what this really would, would show us? Is that man really is distinct, he really is unique. He really is wonderfully and fearfully made. He is nothing like anything else that's brought before him in all of creation. And the only way for that to be remedied is for a good God to do something good about it. And So as that's, that's happening, he's realizing that God's acknowledging it. God is very intentional in all that he does. And so the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs, closed, it up, um, closed up the place with flesh. Uh, another interpretation of rib here by the way might be side which includes the rib and the flesh around it Um, a lot of theologians have even gone this far well i wonder how god would have done this and they speculate on the movement and the actions of god i'm not being flippant here but who cares who cares how god did it who cares uh who knows how adam slept through this I'm pretty sure that whenever the God of the universe puts you to sleep, you're going to stay asleep. And finally, the psalmist of, of Psalm 3 gets it. He says, I lie down and sleep, and I awake again because the Lord sustains me. God puts Adam under, and God brings him back as he does a divine surgery to bring out of man that which is good. Okay? I just, um, I don't know. I'm sure I talk in Chastis sometimes like, yeah, you... Make mountains out of molehills also, because sometimes I'll talk, she's like, does that matter? It absolutely matters to me. I'm just saying that there are mysteries we embrace. Okay, the rib that God had taken from the man he made into woman, y'all, the Hebrew word for, for man is Adam. Why Why do we call them Adam and Eve? Uh, Adam named Eve, right? So Adam got, Adam named her, but we use Adam because that's the Hebrew word for man. Fun fact, just so you know. Okay, The other part, though, he says she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Um, That's what it literally means. Woman means literally of man. Um, That's kind of the, the breakdown. Here's what one commentary said about it, and I thought this was just very nice and sweet, and I loved it. Okay? I don't know if it's the point, but it made me feel good. She was created from his ribs so that she would be under his arm for protection and near his heart for love. That is nice. I like that one. I don't know if that's a real intent because we cannot know the mind of the Lord, but it is very applicable, and I think that it fits the role of the husband for the wife. Love her dearly, provide for her. So that commentator's probably right on. I like this. The last um, five words of the sentence we were in, the verse we were in, so last five words of, of verse 22 And God brought her to the man. God brought her to the man. Very simply, God created woman. The same God who formed man, he formed woman. The same image of God that man was made in is the same in which she was made. While the woman was created of man, she was created with as much beauty, as much dignity, and by the exact same God who himself brought her to Adam and said, look what goodness I've created for you. What you could not, I'm sorry, what he could not find anywhere else in creation, God's provided for him. I, I, I'm i just telling y'all, Just I'm going to be reading a lot of my notes here for y'all um, throughout the day. But but hear this church. Y'all, may the church constantly seek to protect and redeem the image of women. They are good creations formed by a good master. How dare we entertain any ideas that make her less than a creation made in the image of God? May we always fight for that redeeming image of of women. It goes on. Man, Adam's pumped in verse 23. You could probably hear his voice all throughout the garden. He has seen creation after creation after beast after bird parade before him probably maybe two of them going along so that there is that yearning that grows within him. But either way, there is this awareness in him that there is nothing like him. And then God says, but look what I have for you. Oh, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then it gets into verse 24. Y'all, from God's word in the very beginning, here is where we see the verses, the first point to the first marriage. And just using kind of our own cultural context of, of how we do weddings in America, you know what I think is really neat? That God is the one who gave the bride away. I just think if I pull it into to how we would do this today, the, the father always walks the bride down the aisle. And in this case, it says that God brought her to the man and says, now you two become one flesh. Like there's this great marriage scene in a perfect and good garden. They didn't have to order roses or greenery. It's all there. There's all of creation. And Adam's pumped. And here comes God, the father of everything. And he brings the bride to the groom. But this verse, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This this is what I think we fail to grasp fully. Okay? Okay? I think we really fail to grasp that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, but then this last part, they shall become one flesh. We can imply a lot of things into, well, how's that going to happen? And, and what do we do with that? We're going to see in Scripture what that really means. Scripture is so clear, but, but I think that we tend to love out marriages and 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 another reason that I actually told Trent, I said, I'm actually going to look down a whole lot today because I, I really want to be so humble and so careful as to not look over here at Jared as I'm preaching this verse and, you know, Brad as I'm preaching this verse and, and Bo as I'm preaching. I don't want any of that because I think whenever we begin to realize or whenever we get, begin to get confronted with Scripture, which you don't need, and someone who's up here trying to make you feel the conviction or trying to hammer a point home. So I'm actually intentionally looking down a lot of the times because I'm humbly saying, y'all, I haven't figured this out either, right? I don't know how to do all this, and I don't want you to think I do. And usually whenever I preach a really hard sermon or, or we start, uh, but I, I don't think it's really that hard. Like I'm getting really excited about point number two that's about to come up, but I don't want you to be manipulated in any way by, by me. So I'm actually trying to just stick to my notes and, and continue on. Um, so if you're wondering why you see the top of my head a whole lot, it's that reason. I'm going to break every form of effective communication and, and not keep perfect eye contact and perfect tone. It's really just so that we wrestle through the text. Okay, but that said, I wrote, we tend to live out our marriages not as one, even in the church. We don't live it as one, but we live it as two. But from the beginning, God designed, God's design for marriage has been between a man and a woman who will live as one. One flesh, one mindset, one agenda, one desire, one intent, everything is one. There's no competing schedules. There's no competing bank accounts. There's just one. Like, my life is buried in the marriage with Chas. Her life is buried in the marriage with me. We are no longer two people trying to make it as one. We are two who have become one. There's a difference there. Right? We keep striving in such a way that that we're trying to make two lives one whenever, from the beginning, God's desire was, you're going to be one. Now... Granted, Genesis 2 was written before Genesis 3. And in Genesis 3, that's where there's the big breakdown. And there is a curse between the man and the woman. And there's a she wants to have authority with it. There's a breakdown. Y'all, we are living in an imperfect world that has been broken by sin. Which, by the way, had we been Adam and Eve, we would have done the exact same thing. Okay? So we live in this brokenness. We need to strive and we need to, we need to really push for this one flesh. At the core of our broken marriages, y'all, is the desire to live for our own selves, our own satisfactions, our own desires, our own pleasures, our own glories. And all of that comes down to our own pride. For two to live as one, there has to be humility. There has to be a dying to self. And we're going to see that here at the end. But two people seeking their own satisfactions needs at once will never bring two to one. It's just not going to happen. I want this. Well, I want this. Well, let's compromise and try to do this. Well, we've also brought our own desires and satisfactions into this compromise. There's a, there's a better solution that, that is a death to self. That's not easy. I get it. But husbands, we're going to see later that our role is to, to love our wives as Christ loved the church, which means that the husband dies to himself. And and we're going to look at that. And I realize i got to move a lot quicker, and I will. Don't you worry. Okay? That's where we're going with all this. What does it mean? How do we get that, that mystery of these two imperfect sinners into one? And it says, And the man and the wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. And so here has been something that helped me to grapple with Scripture more. And it's point two. Y'all, there is a greater glory for marriage than what you have right now. There is a greater glory. This is the part that I start to get really excited about, and I can tell you I'm going to, I am going, I, am not uh, educated or experienced enough to be able to preach this effectively. So I'm trusting the Spirit to let the seed kind of drop and, and take root. So I'm not going to do justice to this, but I'm going to do my best. I want to give you just a kind of a, a, an inkling of, of what God has been doing with me. Uh, throughout this all, but our marriages are just pictures of a much grander marriage that's going to take place. Like what you and I are experiencing, y'all, this is just like a microcosm of the macrocosm of where we're going to see and we go, wow, like it was never about our marriages. Like all of this, as much as I enjoy it, We're going to Branson, and and Chas and I are going to have a date today, and which is super exciting. And then we're gonna, and we enjoy that time together, and we love that time together. And yet, this is not what our life is all about. And husbands and wives, we tend to make our marriages the center of all of who we really are. But there's a, this is just a picture. This is just, uh, it's a glimpse of a marriage that is going to span all of eternity. And I'm not making that up. It's in Scripture that there is a coming marriage that spans all of eternity. And our marriages are meant to convey, y'all get this, the fulfillment of the gospel. Like they really can convey the mystery and the fulfillment of the gospel. Imperfectly, but people in the world should be able to look at a Christian marriage with the right scope in front of it and say, that marriage is radically different than anything else I've ever seen. And then whenever they begin to ask, how'd you do that and 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 how do you do this and that? Our answer is all that Christ has given us, we just give to the other. Like that's kind of the fullness of it. And absolutely, as you begin to grapple with this, Satan is going to say, That is not how you need to have a great marriage. Like you need this, you deserve this, and this is why they should be doing this for you. Pride will absolutely rear its head. Y'all remember that pride began in Satan in heaven, and he brought it down to earth. It is a spiritual enemy within us. You cannot defeat pride with physical strength. You defeat pride in the spiritual realm. And as Satan brought pride to us, and and that's a spiritual reality, so Christ embraced humility in heaven and brought it to us. So we combat satanic, demonic, evil pride with godly, divine, Jesus-focused humility. So, how did I get to this point? Look at Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22 is really heartbreaking in a sense and really freeing in a sense. Chas and I wrestle with this, this conversation um, in our own hearts. And it's valid. I totally get it. But this is one of those passages where I, I started going, wait a second, what's, then what's really going on? Like, what, what's all this for? Matthew chapter 22, verse 23 through 30 says... The same day Sadducees came to him, came to Jesus, who say that there is no resurrection. And they ask him a question saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died and having no offspring left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her." Now, verse 29, but Jesus answered them, saying, You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. By the way, he's referring, he's saying, You're wrong. By the way, you're denying yourselves. You're Sadducees. You don't believe in the resurrection. You're, you're trying to bait me. So that's all they were trying to do. But now look at verse 30. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Their question was, She had husbands here on earth. Whose, whose wife will she be in heaven? And Jesus says, you don't get it. There is no marriage. There's no husband and wife there. I hate that. I love my marriage. Like, I, I get excited about marriage. You want to talk to me about marriage? I will tell you how wonderful it is. Uh, I, I love it. And, but for all, in, all indications we have in Scripture, our marriages, y'all, are momentary. When I pass away because I'm going first, whenever I pass away, that marriage was meant for this world only. That means that there's a timeline, there's a limit, there's an expiration date on our marriages. And I didn't know what to do with that, to be quite honest, because something that's so good and enriching and seems to be at the beginning of creation, then if it brings such blessing and, and, and joy in my life, then how in the world is it good that it's not there anymore whenever I get to heaven? And I really wrestled with that. And, and Chas and I have been like, well, that, that's just sad. Like, we don't understand it. I don't get it. We don't like that. And um, so hear me on this, that, that though it may make you sad, which is valid, they were just meant for this world. And, and while it's sad, it's actually pretty awesome. It really is. Whenever you begin to realize that, that the breakdown is, um, it's not that we won't know each other. Some would say that this verse means that we don't actually know one another. I don't see that in Revelation. I mean, John is able to recognize people from every uh, tongue and tribe, and people um, seem to have that full recognition. So it doesn't mean that we don't know each other. It doesn't even mean that we don't love each other. It just means if we're sad right now, we don't understand how limited our love and experience and the richness of it actually is. We need things on this earth to make us feel loved with one another, to make us feel comfortable with one another, the intimacy that we feel, like the fact that we can joke and have inside jokes and that that's a connection for us, we don't understand yet the full reality of all that is meant to be in heaven. Like, it's better. We don't need marriage to fill the deeper connection. We're just going to be that rich. Our hearts right now are finite. Our minds, our emotions are fickle, and they shift and they fade. In heaven, they don't. We don't need a covenant in heaven to know that we all belong to one another. But the, the closeness that Chas and I feel that I cannot experience with anybody else in heaven, there's going to be that richness amongst all of the redeemed. It's pretty cool. Our scope is way too small and, and I, I get it. I truly, pastorally understand it. But there's going to be a greater devotion and love to absolutely everyone in all of heaven, from all of time, from every tongue and tribe. And y'all, especially for God who is in our presence. The deepness of the relationship that I feel with my wife is going to be overwhelmingly swallowed up. And I don't think that I'm going to care in that moment, whenever I'm with my God, that I don't have a covenant marriage with my wife. I mean that in full love, but I don't think we get it's all that I'm trying to get to. I think that we have something in this world that gives us a foretaste of something much greater. Um, um, the, we, the sufferings of this world are not worth comparing to the weight of glory for which we're being prepared. I think that our marriage, the glory that we have in that, is nothing in any way, comparable to what we're going to experience because God will be our God with us. He will be wiping every tear from our eye. We're going to be in perfect communion with him. Everything that you and I get a glimpse of right now will be full glory then. The reason it makes us sad now is because we only see it in a mirror dimly. Like we just barely get an idea. But y'all, this is all the goodness that we have to look forward to. I mean that in a great way, okay? But but we're a real marriage I drive her crazy. Sometimes she looks at me and she's like, I don't even know what to say to you right now, right? She's like, sometimes you just say such random things. I don't know how to respond to you. And I know I drive her crazy in other ways. But if, I I know I make her very happy in other ways. Like I fully acknowledge there's, but if this is the best that there is, I don't think that we understand heaven. There is a deeper, greater, richer love, a fullness that we cannot experience here and we're going to have it with everyone. So while it's a blessing, you know, I don't, I don't, don't get me wrong. Uh, Proverbs 18, 22. I absolutely believe it. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Absolutely. But a scriptural balance is that the Lord blesses us with marriage. But for many of us, we're tempted to find all of our satisfaction, wholeness, and marriage. Like, that's, that's, my, that's where I think we go wrong. The good that God gave us in our marriage, we have made it the idol. And we wouldn't say idol, but when you're fighting with your spouse, is all your joy gone? When there's brokenness in the marriage, is there, is there that loss that you feel? And then whenever there is a smile or there's, there's uh, the, the restoration, you have fullness of joy. Our marriages seem to dictate more of who we are than the joy that we should have in the salvation of the Lord. Part of that's just for your sanctification, by the way. Part of that is God gave you that spouse. You've got to realize it. What do you do with that? All right? Some of you got a long journey. Chas was blessed with a really wonderful unrocky road. She has full blessing with me. Absolutely. Y'all, yeah, we are for one another's sanctification. We are to help one another, but we are not to be the Lord to one another. And I feel that that's what we've done in our marriages. Our marriages kind of become that which we hold higher than everything else. There's a, there's a picture, and it's a triangle. And so triangles look like this, so you don't have to think too hard. But if you put husband here and wife here, if they're trying to meet one another's needs, then they're just they're going to stay at their same distance. They're going to just push to one another. But watch what happens whenever there's husband and wife and God is here, and the husband and the wife are both pursuing God first, then, then God draws them together. That's what we want. That's what we need to tell young married couples. Make God the center of all that you do and do it before you develop bad habits. Because we all know that we develop bad habits and we develop ruts. And you know the problem with ruts? We always fall back into ruts. Drive down a rutted road, it doesn't matter how long it's been since it's been traveled, we find the ruts again. So we tell young and we tell one another are you pursuing the Lord? Pursue Him. He'll draw you closer. makes absolutely no sense to the world, but the world doesn't understand the Lord, and they don't want to understand the Lord. They want to tell you how to find yourself in your marriage and fight for what you deserve. And what the the Lord says is, this isn't about you at all. I'm trying to give you an idea of what it's like to be in union with me. By the way, deny yourself. Y'all, so I'm I'm just going to say... Enjoy marriage, absolutely. It is fantastic. I love it. It's wonderful, but it will expire in this world. And while that is sad, it's only sad whenever we forget that we're going to be in the presence of the God who spoke all things into existence. The one whose word echoes throughout the universe right now. You're going to be seated there with him. And I am going to know chastity. And she's going to know me. And our relationship is going to be so much richer than anything else that we can have in this world. It's going to be better. I'm going to know Jared in such a richer, fuller context than any way that I can know right here. And the closeness that we will have uh, as, as now husband and wife, but as then just the redeemed saints glorifying God and with him for all of eternity, we're going to have that richness that we can only seem to get through Marco Polo with our distant time and try to make all these schedules. like all of us will know each other Fully. So there is a greater glory. Go to Revelation 21. Revelation 21. And check this out. Where this is So started in, in Matthew 22, that there will be no marriage in heaven. And I had to wrestle with that, with why. If there's no marriage in heaven, then why do we have this now? Because God is good and He said, you need something really great and glorious and wonderful in this earth. It's part of what I designed. You need to experience this. But all it really does is give us a foretaste of that great union. Now look at Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And y'all watch this. And I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem. That's, that's where we will be dwelling, by the way. So we're, this is us. This is where we will be in the future. Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a What? a bride adorned for her husband. Your marriage and my marriage, the bride coming to the husband, the great union, it's just a picture of that. Like, from beginning to end, what God began in in the garden with, I'm going to bring two to become one, and it will be a perfect union and marriage. In Revelation, we see that everything that went in between was just building the picture that there will be a perfect marriage between the bride of Christ, which is the church, y'all, and coming down to Jesus Christ, who is the groom. That's the great marriage. You and I get to be pictures of that great marriage. We get to participate in in it fully. I'm going to keep going. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. And then you'll look at verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls of the seven last plagues and spoke to me. That's a totally different sermon. Okay, saying, Come and I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And then it begins, y'all begins to describe the beauty of the new heaven and the new earth. And it's a not just a temple. This is where we're going to be, y'all. The church that Christ has redeemed is the bride of Christ. You're in a marriage right now with a spouse. That's just a picture of a much grander marriage that's going to happen. We wouldn't even understand that concept and how God, the groom, is pouring in and loving and providing for and protecting and redeeming and sanctifying and welcoming and embracing his bride if we didn't have this right now. Right? This is just a foretaste. I think that this picture should do three things for us. It should, number one, it should humble us as individuals to live holy lives. That picture of of the saints redeemed and collected for all of eternity and brought in as the bride of Christ, it should humble us as individuals, lead us to live holy lives. Forsake every sin you can. It should also humble the church and lead us to promote holiness within the church. The church is the bride of Christ. Therefore, we need to consider how and why we do church the way we do. It's not just people coming in. We're not just trying to, 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 to reach um, the community. We're, we're seeking to bring in the saints. And we need the church to be holy. Why? Because the bride needs to be holy for the son, for the groom. And it should shape how we live our lives and live out our marriages now. So I, you know, I, I wanted to, to marry Chastity because I loved her and I wanted to love her more. I never wanted to be apart from her. That, that was at the core of it. But what most of us make marriage out to be is a pursuit of our own delight and hoping that the other will somehow come along and support it. We make this momentary marriage the source of comfort and delight, and we completely forget that it's a momentary marriage that will end, and therefore we should be caught up in a much grander view. So your marriage is a blessing from the Lord. It is His goodness to you so that you will not be alone and so that you will have a foretaste of a union much bigger than yourself. Um, Paul talked to the super Christians. They don't need that kind of help, right? They they get the Lord fully. They're single. They they get all of His full affection. But those blessed, uh, I'll, I'll just keep going. Here's here's what I, I want to kind of pull that all to. Um, goodness, there's so much here. That that just as parents are supposed to train their kids for godliness. If we don't train our kids, walk with me here. If we don't train our kids. Through discipline and obedience, Scripture says that they will never be subject to the Lord. So we train our own kids right now, like in this moment, we train them in our home so that they will be submissive to the Lord later. That's what Scripture says we must do. Therefore, for us, we need to train ourselves in marriage in such a way that we are prepared for the grander marriage that's before us. We must be willing to live holy marriages. We must be willing to fight for that which God gave us. We must be willing to die to self. That the training of our kids is much like the training that we have in our marriage right here. It teaches us to forsake ourselves. all the commands of the one another's. You know what? They apply to your spouse. Pray for one another, love one another, bear one another's burden, forgive one another, exalt or encourage one another, show or outdo one another in showing honor. All of that, your wife, your spouse is the one another. Everything that should be worked out in the context of the fuller church should be walked out within the church that lives within your own house as well. And as we work those things out, then we realize that we are pursuing holiness and goodness and we are being prepared as the bride that will be coming down to the groom and Jesus will welcome us and love us forever and ever and ever. But to be prepared for that, we need to practice now. Your marriage is a context for learning how to live sacrificial lives to which he has called us. Your marriage, y'all, is not completely about you. It was for you. It's a blessing for you. It's a blessing to me, but it was never meant to be about us. It was meant to be about Jesus Christ. It was meant to be about one who sought out another and died to himself to redeem her so that they could live as one forever and ever and ever. Husbands, that is our role. That is what Scripture says. And I'm about to take you to the verses. And, and then we're going to tie up. Y'all bear with me just a tad bit longer. Um, I'm gonna, y'all can make a note of 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 5. Um, we won't go there and read that one right now. Second Cor- I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. That's a really important passage for marriages. It really is. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Why do I want couples to read that? Because the world has taken something which God built into his good design of marriage and that they should be fruitful and multiply, and Satan has completely broken and distorted it so that what is good in God from the very beginning, Satan has made evil, and I believe it's distorted even Christian marriages. So read, please, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1-5. through 5. Husbands are probably going to be like highlighting that one. That's the memory verse for the week. Right? Wives, you might be doing the same. I don't know, but that's, a, that's an important passage, y'all. It really is. Why? Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again. Why? So that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. There's a protective intimacy right there. Okay, now the ones I do want us to look at, and we're going to do these very quickly, Ephesians chapter 5. Actually, this is the, the one full verse. Ephesians chapter 5. How then shall we live? Wives, you have a role. Husbands, you have a role. Wives, I'm going to tell you something. Husbands, I'm going to push in a little bit further, okay? And then you can push whenever we go fishing. Trent Trent can be like, now remember in Ephesians chapter 5. Pastors are absolutely not exempt to any of all this. Ephesians 5. How then shall it so in light of the fact that it's momentary, in light of the fact that, that the marriage is not all about us and that it was good in the beginning, how then shall we live? Here we go. Ephesians 5:22 through24 for the wives. Wives submit to your own husbands. Wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Men are going to have that one memorized by the time y'all drive home. I have two words that I think need major underlining in that. Submit, and then the word own. Submit to your own husbands. Not to other husbands. Not to the ones who write the books. Not to the the philosophers. Submit to your own husbands. But then this, as to the Lord. Why will Chas submit to me? Because she's, she's, she's looking past me. It's to the Lord. Right? If her eyes are on God, then she's going to, she might not always agree with everything I say, but she's going to submit to me because the Lord's right here. So if her eyes are on Him, she can submit to me because she's really submitting to Him. So that, as to the Lord, is really, really important. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is, is Himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So to what degree do wives submit to husbands? As the church submits to Christ. That's the degree. You know how much we as a church submit to Christ? Absolutely, fully trusting and knowing that he's doing all things well. Okay. So wives submit to your husband. This is your scriptural, God-designed duty for your marriage. This is where you want to say, Ricky, what authority do you have to tell me that? And I get to proudly say, I don't. Like, this one's not me. That's why your eyes are on the Bible. This is why you always need the Bible in front of you. But y'all listen to this. Never, I'm sorry, not guys, uh, wives. And you're going to need this advice for for some women in your lives. Never submit in such a way that it causes you to deny God or Scripture. And never in such a way that hurts you or leads to your neglect or abuse. This verse has been taken out of context and has been used to hammer abuse and guilt within marriage, and that's not what it was ever meant for. So, never submit in such a way that it causes you to deny God or Scripture, and never in such a way that hurts you or leads to your neglect or abuse. That is not biblical submission at all. But if your husband professes to be a believer and you see that fruit and he is trying to lead and trying to grow in Christ, though imperfectly, there is nothing sinful in his decision, then your role is to submit. Why? Because you submit to the Lord and you trust the Lord to take care of you. Now, men, 25 through 32, Paul spent more time on us. Husbands, love should be underlined. Husbands, love your wives to what degree? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's that's your role, men. Love your wife. To what degree Christ loved the church? And what did Christ do? To what degree did Jesus, this is what I want to hammer to men and, and young men whenever they're getting ready to get married, to what degree did Christ love the church? He died and bled for her. I don't think we have enough husbands in churches that are ready to die right now. I'm saying the physical, like if there's a gunman who comes in here, I think we have enough men who will take the bullet. Absolutely. Physical death for your wife? Absolutely easy. That's the coward's way. really is. Husbands, die for your wife. Emotionally, spiritually. Not spiritually, that's a bad one. Take that back. Blame that one on my bad back emotionally. um, uh, I'm losing my other word. Um, Y'all just forgive me there. What I'm trying to say is that you know what dead men do not have? Their own desires, their own dreams, their own temptations and sin, their own indulgences. Whenever those come up, we die. Our own preferences, we die. Whenever our whenever needs and expectations are met, you know what, what we're supposed to do? Love your wife as Christ loved the church. How disappointed must a holy God be whenever he sees his kids living in rebellion? And that's who we were. Children of wrath like the rest of mankind, pursuing our own desires, and yet Christ said, despite that, I'm coming for you. Husbands, whenever we do not see wives fulfilling our expectations, whatever it is that our preferences or expectations might be, you know what our response is? Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? Because just as, uh, as, as Chas would submit to me as unto the Lord, whenever we do this with a God-glorifying death, then we trust that Christ will take care of everything for us. Why would Christ do this? So that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water. You know why we die to self? So that we have the opportunity to bring our wives closer into communion with God. Like we have a perfect mirror here between Christ and the church and we live that out in the context of our home so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. There's absolutely something wonderful in the fullness of Christ's death for the church but men, our death in our marriages is meant to mirror that for our wives. Paul did it intentionally. We see it played out in Revelation. Women... Wives, you are to submit as unto the Lord. Husbands, you are to die. She submits, you die. That is not what your world says, by the way. Our world says, this is what it's like to be a man in a marriage. This is what it looks like. You can find movies. You can find, you can find uh, uh, advice out on websites from sociologists and psychologists. You can find any, any array of what love should look like and all of it's worldly advice. And here's God saying, you know what my design in marriage was? That, that you would submit to Him and that He would love you in such a way that, that He wants to bring you into the fullness to greater glory. Man, that's hard. I'm trying. And I stink at it. I really do. I don't think anybody told me as I was preparing for marriage that my role, whenever I said I do, is to die to myself. No one ever told me that. We need to tell young men that the way that they're going to help their wife is to to die to self. Because you know what, men? As we die to self, what's going to happen is she's going to more readily submit and respect you. Why? Because that's God working in your marriage and not you trying to work it out. I'm, I can hammer the men right now because I'm up here as one who's guilty. Our death is placing our death in the trusting work of Jesus Christ. And I'm, I'm going to just kind of, uh, I've got more. You can, uh, you can look at Colossians chapter 3. I'll just read it to you. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And then it follows all that with whatever you do, work heartily is for the Lord and not for men. You know that verse that everybody loves to quote about their job? It wasn't about a job. It's in the context of marriage. So if you go to Colossians 3, you'll see that in verses 18, 19, and 23. Wives, you submit as is fitting in the Lord, and work heartily at that as for the Lord, not for men. And then husbands, love your wives, do not be harsh. Work heartily at that. So keeping all things in context begins to change those verses. I think Paul knew that this was going to be hard. And he says, work at this, and work at it hard. And you know what? It also says in verse 24 of Colossians 3, knowing that that from the Lord you'll receive your inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. So a God-shaped marriage looks different than the world. And I have more notes. And anytime y'all want, I will gladly send you my outlines and notes. This one was, again, slightly longer, but this one I felt like needed to be out there. That your marriage is not about you. And it's really not even about your spouse. It's about the fullness of the gospel. How can you grow with the spouse that God has given you for mutual goodness to live as one flesh because you will see the Lord one day? How do you grow in holiness? Wives submit, husbands die, and therefore begin to exemplify Christ. But as long as pride is at the middle of it, well, what happens when this and this and this, what happens when that's all self coming back? That's all pride. Until we remove pride from our Christian marriages, we will never live humbly as the brides that we were supposed to be. Y'all, let's pray. Lord God, one day, we, the bride of Christ, will see you, our groom, the radiant and majestic king of all glory. We will be with you forever and ever in the great and grand marriage that spans all of eternity. But Lord, what I'm asking you to do right now is to refresh the marriages in cross life. And, and, if, and for those who listen to this through our podcast because they weren't able to gather here, Lord, even they're not, though they're not sitting in this room, uh, we, we long for them, we miss them. But Lord, would you redeem marriage in your church? Would you give men the strength and the boldness to be so humble and die? And would you give, give the wives such strength and boldness to trustingly submit to their husbands? Because all of this is just a foretaste of something much bigger than us. What it really calls us to do is it challenges us to be humble, which is exactly what you've called us to do. You've taken two imperfect saints... Sinners, people who are prone to wonder. Lord, you've you've slammed us together into this glorious union of marriage and said, look how good this is. Lord, I pray that that you bless the marriages in cross life. I pray that you keep us humble and that you help us to live for your glory and we find all of our satisfaction and joy in you and not ourselves. And Lord, I am just thankful again that we have your word to shape us. Lord, we love you and praise our son's holy name. Amen. Okay, so.